Well, welcome back to another episode of Fukum Conversation. It's been a while, but I'm super excited for our next guest, Dr. Sarah Florence Davidson, who is a Haida Settler Assistant Professor in the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University. Prior to that, she completed her PhD in Literacy Education at the University of British Columbia. And her research focuses on Indigenous pedagogies, literacies, and stories, and I would say so much more. So I'm so excited, so happy to have you on the podcast. Sarah, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm super excited to have this conversation with you today. Okay, so you know, before we delve into your work a little bit and into your background, there is a three-hour difference because you're in British Columbia, you're at uh, yes, I am. Simon Fraser University. I'm not quite sure where you're living at the moment right now, but there's been in the news all these wildfires in the Northwest Territories in Yellowknife and the evacuation, but also in Kelowna. And I know you, in terms of the work that you're doing and on your website, have indicated that you're on the Stolos traditional territories. Is that correct? Yes. That is a good prompt for me to update my website. I'm actually, <laughs> we're now on the uh, unceded Semiamo, Katsi, and Kwantlen uh, nations now uh, where we are living. Okay. And so where would that be in relation to Simon Fraser University then? I'm on the Surrey campus and we are living, uh, we live in the city of or township of Langley, which is um just about, I don't know, 35 minutes, depending on who's driving, <laughs> east of Vancouver <laughs> for folks who are unfamiliar with all of the suburbs. So that's in between then, uh, where you were before. Yes. Yeah. And yes. and Langley, they just uh, had the national track and field competitions there. I didn't I know that. Yeah, I, well, know, I, I know that we had a Harley Davidson <laughs> gathering a while okay. back, but, um, <laughs> uh, but that was maybe a little more obvious than the, uh, the track and field. <laughs> well, my, I only know, like, I only know that because my son, my eldest son does track and field and they had hmm. the U18 nationals and then I think the open nationals out there. So we were paying attention to that a little bit because he had some friends that went out there. Oh, I think nice. you, I, no, actually they had the U twenties too, but you had to make certain standards to to go. So he's hoping maybe next year, and I think they they might be in Montreal next year if I'm if I'm not uh, not wrong on that. But anyway, so like I know where you're talking about nice. in that that area, of course. But so have you all been then impacted yeah. by the any smoke or anything like that in terms of what or wild, other wildfires that are taking place around there? Yeah, no, we've been really, really lucky in terms of the proximity to the wildfires, but definitely we've had a lot of smoke. It seems to be clearing today, but yesterday it was it was really bad and definitely sending loads of positive thoughts to uh, our friends and, and colleagues who are currently being in- impacted um, directly, more directly by the fires. By the fires? And has anyone that you've known, like, have they been, like, have they had to temporarily evacuate closer to where you all are at? Or have you been in contact? Like, I reached out to some colleagues and friends in Kelowna just to see how things were. Yeah, and it it sounds based on that, that there were a few people who had to evacuate. And then we have family members who are very close to a fire in in Kamloops. And so they're currently on uh, evacuation alert. It's so terrifying. I, I kind of I went out yesterday and I was listening to the news and, and just kind of got really overwhelmed. Um, and, you know, with folks in, in Northwest Territories, I, I've done work up there. And so just thinking about all of those people up there having to do quite a difficult uh, evacuation there just because of, of uh, you know, it involves flying out. So it's quite overwhelming right now in terms of what's going on in the world. And I've had conversations uh, with people who are sort of feeling at a bit of a loss in terms of the work that they're doing and how it makes sense in this time. And I've definitely felt that in, in you know, as I've been teaching and things, but, you know, with all the, all the experiences that students are facing right now and how it impacts, how they, how they engage with, with mm-hmm. uh, you know, what we're doing in courses and, and classrooms. Yeah, well, I can't remember in my lifetime, the smoke from fires, even in the city of Ottawa. So we've been in Ottawa, I think mm-hmm. now close to 18 years. And I don't recall a summer, even just within those 18 years of there being the impact of the fires from northern Quebec coming down and parts of northern Ontario coming through Ottawa and then Toronto and then even crossing over to uh, the US. So my brother mentioning it, he's in uh 
Michigan mentioning that smoke and we have, you have that in all these fires. And then this summer has been compared to the last few summers. And I don't know what it's been like for you, uh, where you're at, or if you've, uh, if you've gone home to visit in terms of the weather, but it, this summer it's been like, well, last summer was really, really dry all summer. And then this summer was dry to start off with. And then rain sporadically, but a lot in one go. So it's like, okay, you don't have rain for two days. Oh. And then all of a sudden, a lot of rain, like the the amount of uh, rain that's coming down is just overwhelming, like Ottawa. And, and we, we travel back before uh, between Ottawa and Wasega Beach. And it's the same thing here in terms of the garden. Uh, really difficult to get into the garden because it's so wet. So I don't know if that's been the same for all of oh, you in terms of the weather out there. We've had drought. We're desperate for rain here. Except my mom is an organic farmer and you know, she said that they're currently using the last little bits. They're sort of imagining that at any moment the well will run dry because they're very low with their water supplies. And she said right now they're also having to use water just to cool mm. the plants, not even to water them, just to kind of keep them cool, which she's never really had to do before. And, and we still have a ways to go with our summer weather. So it's, yeah. it's, it's quite, quite concerning. So the semester is going to gear up in a couple of weeks. And I'm just wondering, did you did you have time to have a little bit of a reprieve this summer? Uh, I know on your your website. So I'm wondering, like, did you have time to read or write or knit <laughs> or drink tea or drink lots of tea? <laughs> did, were you, did you visit with family? How, how this works. I make time. Is it to that? No, is it that I order? Time to drink tea. <laughs> um, I didn't do that much writing this summer. I was, I was hopeful to do more, but I did a lot of reading. And so what I tend to do is when I'm on vacation, which I, we were very, very lucky and took uh, a couple of weeks and, and went over to Vancouver Island. And so I did get lots of reading in, uh, and I do like to read kind of my vacation reads over the summer or, you know, when I'm off and, and uh, just kind of re-enter uh, the world that uh, is shared with, with a lot of other people as opposed to my academic friends. <laughs> and uh, and also reading Gloria Ladson-Billings' new book. It's sort of a compilation of, of older work, but it's kind of, a, it's really interesting to, to, uh, to have it come together on culturally not responsive relevant relevant yes yeah there's three r words and i always forget but yeah culturally relevant pedagogies and, and it, it's it's quite interesting and um yeah. well i know i know others have like culturally relevant responsive relational uh sustaining sustaining <laughs> yeah there's a lot of different crrp for sure yeah um well yeah. that's great so you're reading that but you're but but you're saying like there's other Oh, murder mysteries. Okay, murder. So what so what's your favorite when you're on vacation? Like what's your go-to? Is it the murder mysteries? Well, okay, so I, I really love a good rom com if it's well done and fully embraces <laughs> the um the genre. I find sometimes yeah. when they take themselves too seriously, it's like, no, no, you need to anyways. And then I do I do really like suspense thriller and I read um oh my goodness, what is it called? Um I've forgotten the name of it. Uh, oh, wrong place, wrong time. And uh, wrong place, wrong time. And it starts with a murder, and then you it, the the person starts traveling backwards in time, and uh, and you have to figure out actually why the murder took place as opposed to who did it. Almost like Memento, in a way. I don't know if you've seen the film or read the book, but uh, it, it 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 does that in a way as well. But I, you know what i i don't I don't think I've ever read like uh, a murder mystery or those suspense thrillers. And so you'll have to recommend one to me. I, I've been going through because of the film and I wanted to read the book just to see. And I, I don't know why I have an affinity to biographies, but I got uh, Robert uh, Oppenheimer's uh, book. So I've been uh, an American Prometheus. So I've been reading through that. I'm, I'm, I'm just over halfway through and I'm hoping to get, nice. I, you know How what? It? I, 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 it's good. Like I like it. There's, I didn't, I, for me, I didn't, like the sections that went into the history, which is important about all the communist affiliation. It was very detailed about the implications of the mm -hmm. communist party or socialist party and his grad students and him, the whole debate about, about whether he was implicated or not, or how much, um, or, or just, you know, he seemed to, from where I am in the book now, just love to hang around with different people and talk about different ideas. 
And uh, but just the history of like in terms of the field of physics and experimental physics at the time and who who he who his circles were and and what they were talking about and what they were experimenting with. It just um, it, it brought me back to grade 13 physics and us taking up those theories in the 19 late 1980s, 1990s. And uh, but we never you know, their names would be mentioned in relation to theories and concepts. And I would have loved if we had talked about who they were, the history behind them, but we never had time because we had learned so much in the curriculum that you never got to. De- and mm-hmm. for me, I think, you know, for me, that's so important to develop a love for those those subject areas. So I'm really enjoying just reading mm-hmm. about like, OK, you know, they were working on these different theories and, and coming together and debating and meeting and and uh, and trying to, you know, really having these conversations to push each other in terms of the work that they were doing. So, yeah, so far it's been it's been pretty good. And I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how they were able to cram all of this into even a three hour film. So I'll, I'll let you ask. We haven't seen it yet. We haven't <laughs> no, seen it yet. We're, no. We keep planning, but uh, it keeps getting pushed, up, pushed back because it is the three hour time commitment. When do we have three hours to watch a yeah. film? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe do it as part of a class. You can go yeah. for the first time. Let's all go watch this film to, together. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I'm, I'm trying to get through it before I, I actually go see the film. So I'm a little bit better informed. The other reading that I've done this summer has been. Uh, your books and part of your work and I've re- really what what beautiful works but before we delve into your books I, I you know I did introduce you but I don't think I did a, a justice and I was wondering if you could share for our, our listeners a little bit more about the kind of structural cultural framework for uh, your family and the way in, in which your family gene, genealogy and you share with different readers, both in your uh, in your children's books, but also in Potlatch as pedagogy. I just, when I was going through that, you said, uh, I'll just give you an example if you let me read here. Like one of the names that my great grandmother gave me is, and I, I, I want, I'm gonna, I have, there's a couple of enunciations that I have to ask you about. It was Skan, Jungu, San Glans. I, I probably didn't say that even close but on Jacques Gusanglans you were very close on okay and and it, but it translates into killer whale woman on whom it is dawning yes wow that's what a huge responsibility to have that name it well it is and i i mean it's such a it, it is such a beautiful name and and um i actually have three names but that's the name that i sort of use publicly and i've chosen to use publicly in my work okay um and what I love about it is it does connect me um, to my father. Um, his his Haida name is Otsandlans, which means eagle on whom it is dawning or mm. the dawn. And then my mother is uh, Susan Davidson, and, and she always asks to be uh, introduced as a colonizer in, in the work that I do. And uh, she was adopted into the Yakutlanis clan by my great-grandmother Florence Davidson. Um, the heteromatrilineal, which means we follow our mothers. And so, so we have, you know, my brother and I have our clan from my, uh, from my mother. And I just feel like so much of the work that I do is, is maybe similar to, to the work that you do and is sort of operating in, in, in these spaces of intersection. And so it's really important to me in introducing myself or in, in talking about my work that I acknowledge all of the different pieces and and really my parents as a you know a Haida artist and a, a European uh, European ancestry um, organic farmer they both contribute so much to who I am and, and the work that I do and um, and I belong to the Yakutlanis uh, clan the Raven clan from Haida Gwaii but yeah it's I, th- I think it's so interesting to think about how you know it, it took me until I don't know fairly recent in the past decade to start thinking about the impact of all of those experiences on on the work that I do. I I more recently realized that my love of reading really came from my mom and my love of storytelling came from my father. And, uh, and so I, I feel, I feel very, very lucky to, to both continue to have relationships with both of them and continue to learn from both of them. But, um, but to have things that are really, um, that I'm passionate about mm-hmm. uh, come as gifts from, from, from my parents. And did those conversations start 
prior to your doctoral work? Was this part of your doctoral work at UBC in terms of learning more about the history of your family or not learning about it? Because I can see in the I can see in the children's stories and in the stories that you share that even from a very young age, you've been connected to different places, for example, and your dad's community and storytelling and singing. When did you start to think about that in terms of your academic work? Or was that part of it even going into, say, your master's and, and your PhD? Well, it's so I didn't really discover the contribution. I, I, I went into graduate school, really, I deliberately didn't check the the Indigenous box. Um, it was very important to me that I know for myself that mm-hmm. there was, um, that my acceptance into graduate school was based solely on, I would say, very colonial measures. <laughs> but for me, it was really important. I needed to know that that's how I got in. That was my place. And so it, it ended up being kind of a bit of almost denial about my ancestry in in the beginning. And as I worked through my, my master's, I, I started to kind of see some of the, the contributions. And so my master's thesis, although please don't, don't ever look at it, we all say that about our, these, these things that we thought were so uh, insightful at the time. But I was really excited during my, my master's work about the contributions of and you know, what were the strengths of Indigenous pedagogies and more mainstream pedagogies and how could they work together and how could they inform one another and so that was something that I was really excited about um and so I kind of came to this place um at the very end I read Monkey Beach by Eden Robinson um at the very end of my my master's as I was just kind of finishing up my thesis and I kind of had this epiphany of what what would have happened in my high school, in my high school, if, you know, in my high school experiences, if I had read Monkey Beach, uh, because it was such a brilliant piece of literature. And I, it started to, to get me to really reflect on my experiences in school, which wow. I had never really considered yeah. to be horrible. I, I always did reasonably well. Um, but I started to think about what did, what did my mainstream schooling experiences teach me about what it meant to be Indigenous? And I kind of came to the conclusion that really without, you know, I didn't experience overt racism, but I had internalized this view that being Indigenous, being Haida, something I had to hide and something I had to kind of overcome in order to be successful in school and to be accepted at school. And so... I started to think about the impact of literature, the impact of the stories, and the fact that I had never once had a, an English teacher hold up a, a book and say, hey, this is a really great book that happens to be written by an Indigenous author. Uh, my social studies experiences were kind of the typical um, mainstream textbooks and you know the, the colonial narrative that we're very familiar with. And so I didn't really question it or challenge it too much, but it did, it, it sat with me. And it wasn't until I started doing my doctoral work uh, that I started to recognize that kind of mainstream research practices, mainstream teaching practices were maybe not as much as they could be. And I remember I was looking at Stake, I was looking at Stake's case study and being guided by that for my doctoral work and kind of reading through it and really being frustrated that there weren't guidelines on ethics and the ways that we should be working with people or collaborating with people when we're doing research. And that was the first time in my life where I really recognized how much my Haida upbringing had to contribute to this mainstream practice. And it was really exciting for me. And that's where in my doctoral work, where I really looked to our traditional stories, our traditional songs, and found that 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 actually enhanced the work that I was doing. And that was the first time that I really saw my Haida ancestry as something that was strengthening the work that I was doing and was not a kind of deficit that I felt I had to overcome based on on kind of public views and perceptions. And what would you say, like through going through that work, what were for you, some of the biggest conceptual or maybe methodological challenges in terms of the work that you were doing? I'm just curious, like, because you said that you were trying to come at it, having experienced uh, uh, settler colonial curriculum, 
in terms of the kind of literature you encountered or kind of histories that were taught in relation to then trying to reimagine your own positionality and history and genealogy in terms of what might be different. So I was just wondering, you know, how did you like, you know, I would be real curious, like if I was a fly on the wall, what were those conceptual tensions or uh, challenges or was it just a, you know, just a, a liberating, beautiful thing to work through that through it. <laughs> as all as all yes, as yes, all doctoral just... work as all doctoral work you know is. What? It was just this beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, there was a beautiful sunrise one morning and I just uh, spoke to the sunrise. Yeah. No, I think uh, so I think what happened in, in terms of methodology, so I was working with well, I'll, I'll start maybe back a little bit further. Um, when I was doing my doctoral work, I was sort of set on doing a case study, which I had done for my master's. And I was, I was, I took a lot of Indigenous uh, research methodology courses for the purpose of being able to defend why I actually didn't draw on Indigenous methodologies. So I was sort of anticipating that there would be an expectation that I would. Um, that I would draw on them as a, as an indigenous person and uh, working with indigenous students, and so I took these courses with the intention of being able to to sort of say when this is why they weren't a fit, and so I was working fairly closely with Kwam Kwam Kiam's work, the um, indigenous story work, so Dr. Joanne Archibald, and I was sitting with her principles. I was sitting with her indigenous story work principles, and because I was struggling with the lack of guidance on ethics in, in with stake. And I then looked to her work and I was like, wow, these are some really helpful principles in terms of thinking through ethics. I, you know, I was like, Oh yeah, you know, I think I managed to get to five of them and they really fit, they related, they connected. And, and then I was like, oh, okay, well I can just work with these five. And then I thought, well, that, that's probably, probably <laughs> she didn't anticipate that what we would do is, is sort of choose five of the principles that apply in this case. And so I took it as this challenge to sort of understand what were the seven, why were the seven there? And I began <laughs> working with, you know, I started to understand the the research that, you know, the methodology that I was working with as connected to a, a dance and a song that we do. And it's one of, um, it's called At Ao, which is a, a dogfish mother dance. And I started to kind of understand that that I could see some connections. I wouldn't say I understood, but I could start seeing some connections between what it was that I was trying to do in, in my in my research and the dance. And I kind of came to this end place where I, the principles I was struggling with were interrelatedness and synergy. And um, you know, I kind of came to understand interrelatedness through that. And then all of a sudden I got to this place where I was struggling with synergy and I was trying to articulate what is synergy and, and, you know, what is it in this work? And I mean, really the reality is you're not going to be able to just sort of, you know, have the <laughs> 10 steps of synergy, but I had this moment where I began to understand the dance more as a result of exploring how it informed my methodology. And then I had I had the experience later of, of really working through the dance and trying to understand the dance more deeply. Like, what is it that we're trying to convey when we're doing this dance? And I know that I understood all of the, the principles more as a result of my experience with, with Haida dancing. This is traditional Haida dancing. And so I would say, yes, it was this beautiful moment, but it was, uh, it was, <laughs> it was after days and days and days and days of real struggle, probably, probably weeks. I mean, I was, I was really struggling with it and frustrated, but I did kind of come to this place. And then, uh, then I, you know, I think for me, I had been working with the metaphor from the, the, the dance sort of informing the methodology. But when I, when I had the experience of exploring the methodology more deeply to, and then better understanding the dance that was where I was like, whoa, this, this is amazing. And then I think for me, it was so transformational because it, it was the first time in my experience that I really felt that my Haida uh, ancestry and experiences, both, um, you know, culturally and socially had, had really contributed to the work that I was doing and that without it, my work would have been 
it's not nearly as strong as, as the place that I think it came to. Well, it's uh, beautiful uh, that to work with through that, but then the time that you need to think through it as well, right? Absolutely. And and uh, make those connections, and I, which I, I imagine it's it's still still happening in in relation to the different work that you do. Well, I think that it shifted the way that I I think about everything. I think for me, it really solidified in ways that I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know how else I could have, you know, come to the place to, to really see the, the contributions that, well, in this case, Haida, but in, in other places that Indigenous pedagogies can make to learning experiences. And um, to kind of go back and answer your previous question about Potlatch's pedagogy, Potlatch's pedagogy was actually not part of my main dissertation. Um, it was one of my comprehensive exams. Um, and I just elaborated on it. And um, I was going to say they, they allowed you to write a no. whole book as your comprehensive. <laughs> you're just like, you know, for my comprehensive exam, I wrote I wrote a book. Well, no, this was just one paper. This was just yeah, one yeah. paper. Um, what happened is, yeah, so but I think I wouldn't have had the confidence to think that this story had value beyond our family where it is so significant in our community. I think without that experience of working through the Indigenous story work principles and really seeing the important contributions that uh, my Haida ancestry was making and the Haida cultural knowledge was making, I, I don't think I would have got to the place where I saw this story has value beyond my family and my community. And so in that sense, it, it did inform. But yeah, it was just one, I wrote a paper with my father for as my comprehensive exam um, that was just sort of exploring those ideas, those initial principles, the SCADA principles. And and then we kind of came to this place where he started talking about the pole raising. And I was like, oh, dad, <laughs> this is a massive story. So I sort of thought, okay, well, you know, in a couple years, I'll come back. <laughs> They only give me 4,000 words. I think each one was 10,000. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I had an additional okay. 6,000 words. But we started to talk, and it was a shift, right? It was a shift from kind of pedagogy as, as sort of, you know, that we're thinking about land-based pedagogies. And it was a shift to cultural and, and embedding pedagogy within cultural experiences. And so then I did have to pause and said that, you know, I will come back to this. And I had imagined that it would be a kind of, oh, yeah, we'll just do another paper together and just follow up. Well, when he started talking about the poll raising, I, I realized that it was a much bigger story. So, yeah. Yeah. And I what I what I appreciated about your work and and getting to know more about the stories that you've chosen to share is and I, I I totally refrain from doing this is and 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 talk about it in a different way. So in in some areas of educational research, they talk about interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary approaches to the way they might read your work in doing that. But I for me it it's there's something there that's different uh, in the a holistic approach. So there's 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 a there's a commitment to the intergenerational teaching and histories of your family which mm -hmm. some would say, hey, like that's the discipline of history, but I don't see it as such. I see it as like, it's more, it's more holistic than that. There's a spiritual, there's a connection to, to land, place, but also uh, your family in terms of uh, the intergenerational teachings around dance, singing and art mm -hmm. and, and the commitment to being artists. And then through the art, uh, knowledge and history uh, and stories come through. And and what I learned, what I've been able to learn through your work, like Potlatch's pedagogy, which, wow, it's such a, such a, what an amazing way to rethink one comprehensive exams in graduate school that you were able to work on that with your dad and exchange that knowledge and it was valued. And, uh, and then a book came out of it, which is amazing. And it's beautifully written and is uh, two, two things. One, um, you do say like uh, about the ethics around um, the story, you're very conscious of the stories that you're permitted to share the stories that you don't share mm -hmm. who the stories are being shared on behalf so even taking the time to say hey uh, look I'm sharing this story it's not mine to share but I've been given others like my father want this story to be shared so I'm the conduit for this story being shared with certain readers or being passed on so I really appreciate that and then always your commitment to as you said at the start in in the thankfulness but then uh but then also 
the way in which you position yourself to say, and I think it was in your acknowledgments in your dissertation at the start saying, I would like to acknowledge, and you say the, the Musqueam people on whose traditional ancestral and seed territory I learned to be a Euro-Canadian researcer, and then the Haida Nation on whose traditional ancestral and unceded territory I remembered how to learn from the land as well as from the teachings from long ago. And uh, that that intersection there, and then you go on, like talk about an amazing um, community of people we're able to collaborate and learn from and work with for your, your dissertation as well. Oh. Yeah, so I don't, yeah. Yeah, it's just a bit like the, I was looking at the rock and star. Like, wow. <laughs> I, whenever people ask me, I, I'm always hesitant to share with any grad students who my committee was. And so I just, you know, it was it was so amazing because it was like they were all grandparents. And so, you know, our, our meetings would always start. First of all, they would have all three of them there. And then our, our meeting started with catching up on the grandchildren. And what is it like to be a new grandparent? And And it was just such a lovely experience. And I think... I've sort of shared this in some of my writing about how difficult it was to be an Indigenous graduate student. And I'm not, this is nothing against the institution that I went to, but, you know, this is an experience that echoes with all graduate Indigenous graduate students that I speak to. It was just the, the, the love and support and care that I received from my committee really helped me to, to finish the work. And I think, it it made such a difference for me in terms of being able to have the freedom and flexibility to to follow where the work needed to go. And um, Carl was 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 my primary supervisor, and I remember calling him in a panic because I, <laughs> close to the end, I realized I, I realized I didn't answer any of my research questions. Um, I was sort of I think I had a few weeks left, and I called him up and said, "Carl, I don't have the answers to any of my questions." <laughs> He said, that's okay. Like part of this process is that we, you know, we set out our proposal. This is what we intend to do. And and the dissertation is what we end up doing. And the work took me in an entirely different direction. And I'm just so grateful that I had the committee's support to, to be able to follow that and really follow Kajau, which is the, the dogfish mother. It's really, if you're lucky enough to have a, a supporting community about the journey, right? And they're there, mm-hmm. there to pick you up, catch you, challenge you, um, and let you know the meeting's done. Uh, your conversations with the grandparents are done when the tea runs out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke with an ongoing joke with uh, Dwayne because a couple of times he's come to visit and I'll pour him, some, I'm like, here's some tea and I'll fill his cup up halfway. So I guess you don't want me to stay very long. <laughs> <laughs> you need to bust out the big mug. Yeah, there's one liter Tim Horton mugs and fill that up. Yeah, well he would yeah. he, he always says you can tell how long someone wants he wants you to stay by how big a cup they pour you. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um but yeah, so that I mean there is a just going back, uh, there is a there is uh, there is an intergenerational collective in your family on your dad's side of art of, of artists, uh, different artists that have that worked in, with different mediums. So I just wondering, I mean, and that comes out in the in the stories that mm-hmm. you share uh, mm-hmm. in the different you know articles or books or book chapters that you've written in your dissertation, but also in the children books. So I just when did when did it kind of manifest itself into the later books that you wrote with your dad and uh, Janine Gibbons, who did the, the the illustrations, how did that manifest itself in terms of kind of thinking back through that uh, intergenerational connection to art and then coming through in terms of the work that you've done on these children books? My father always talks about the void. So in, in Potlatch's pedagogy, that was kind of present a few times where he, the work that he did was to fill a void. And okay. so there are a couple things. One is it, it has trained me to, to kind of look for where are those spaces where we need uh, more materials or more resources. But it also, the other kind of teaching that came from my father is really that the knowledge that I have is not my own. And so the knowledge that comes to me, it's my responsibility to share that and not hoard it. And I did say that in the book. And so it it really encourages me to see where are those voids in in the worlds that I'm traveling through and also what is what is my uh, ability to contribute to filling those voids and uh, so I, one of the the jobs that I've done quite consistently since I started 
teaching at post-secondary in 2014, is in Indigenous education and teaching teachers, um, the, you know, the mandatory Indigenous education course. And, and um, as I'm sure you can imagine, there are lots of struggles and, and resistance there. And it has decreased over time as we've come to, to bring more of this work into the, the mainstream teaching practices. But one thing I observed was that there was less resistance with stories. There was less, similar to what you were talking about earlier, where when we learn people's stories, we, we kind of engage differently. And I had started to observe that. I, you know, I had done kind of the standard articles and really important articles, and I just found that students weren't engaging meaningfully and were still struggling to kind of understand the significance of uh, and the depth of Indigenous knowledge, which is sort of why I had written um, Potlatch's Pedagogy with my father. That was that was kind of the beginning of that work, and I I felt like we were still missing some things, and I realized like. I was very lucky to have the upbringing that I did. And so even though I grew up in the Lower Mainland, I went back to Haida Gwaii and I, you know, I fished with my family and um, had so many different learning experiences. But I realized that so many, so many educators don't have those opportunities. And so I started to think about uh, also accessibility. And so I thought, you know, picture books are, are sort of a, a way to share knowledge you know, there are no barriers. There, you know, if, if I write a, a picture book, that means everybody can access this knowledge. And so I felt like it was sort of fulfilling my commitment to ensuring that I shared what I was learning. And so I went to the, I went to the uh, publisher and I said, you know, I'd really like to write uh, Jigging for Halibut as a picture book just to see how it works and see if that's something that, that is of interest to people. And I thought that it would be, I could sort of had this vision of teachers reading this book to students and it sort of fulfilled the connection part for Indigenous students being able to see themselves in, in the stories that were being shared. But I also felt like it had the potential for teachers to to kind of come to a different understanding about Indigenous pedagogies, that it kind of brought them into this experience, at least vicariously through the, through the story. And so I, the publisher was like, oh, that's great. That's great. But we'd like four stories. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't. <laughs> I have yeah. one story. And we'll see, we'll see your one story and we'll raise you three. Exactly. <laughs> so then I, and I, 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 I you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to say no to things. And in, in that case, you know, when they're new things and new opportunities, okay, well, I need to maybe go away and think about this for a little while. And, and I don't even, I wish I remembered the moment that it came to me, but I thought, well, this is a really interesting opportunity. I started to think about the different stories um, that might be shared and might be useful for educators thinking about learning and, and also that would be kind of neat for, for young folks. And so that's when it kind of came to me to think about these different stages. And so in Jigging for Halibut with Chinny, my father is a grandson learning from his grandfather to fish and in learning to carve argillite. He's a son learning to carve from his father. And in um, returning to the Akun River, he's a father, you know, teaching children, his children to fish. And then in dancing with our ancestors, he's a, he's a grandfather. What was exciting for me is that we had this, mm -hmm. you know, we were able to follow this intergenerational learning experiences and seeing the follow through. So in book, you know, jigging for halibut and returning to the Akron River, he's learning and then teaching land-based knowledge. And then in, in learning to carp argillite and dancing with her ancestors, it's more cultural-based knowledge. And just having that opportunity, because I think that in experiencing those stories, and it is easier to understand those intergenerational responsibilities and the learning experiences. And, and they were also, it was also really important to me to honor the people who have contributed to my knowledge and also to my father's knowledge who, you know, they may not be the people who, where, the, where we see bios written about, especially, for example, my grandfather, Claude Davidson, he contributed immensely to my cultural knowledge. And being able to honor him in returning to the Akun River was really important to me. And it, it felt like a way to honor them. I think, you know, I'm not a carver. I, I am working to learn to carve, but that's not the contribution that I have to make to my community and my family. And so it was really exciting. And I've been using the books in my own classroom, teaching adults and to teach about Indigenous pedagogies. And 
to invite students to write their own stories and to seek out connections with their yeah. you know family and community and learn the stories of elders in their in their own families and lives and it's been really exciting to see where it where it has gone i didn't have i didn't imagine yeah. that that's where it would go and it's it's been such a wonderful way to to build relationships and understanding with with the students in my classes i i think you are carver you're you're carving a you're you're carving scott <laughs> in the void like the these teachings in the void that aren't that aren't there. It's just a different in a different medium. You're carving. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, it 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 was quite interesting for me because I am actually learning to carve from from my father now, and I'm working on a new project. And what was amazing to me and in, in doing this work is how much of a teacher he is. And you know, we speak about the the art with my father, and I am learning from him as a teacher. And of course, he's using all the Scotta principles to teach me. But it was interesting for us to have that conversation and for me to say, hey, dad, like I've gone to school for however many years <laughs> to learn to be a teacher. And I'm here learning how to be a better educator from you. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And uh, and to acknowledge that, which you do in all the books and all your works, uh, all of your teachers from different communities, you, you take so much time, which I again, I really I really appreciate it because not everyone does that. And, you know, in the one story, Learning to Carve Argelite, uh, in that one story, Learning to Carve Argelite, you, that mountain, do, do, so is, are there still journeys to the mountain that's referred in there? Yes. Too? Yes, they do. Yes. And that, that was tricky to write because I wanted to be sure not to... Identify um, the mountain? Exactly. I mean, people can, <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, I don't want to be the one who... It's like, okay, here's the map. Here's the X. Everybody come on <laughs> but yeah, no, there there was a tremendous responsibility in sharing the stories. And in returning to the Akun River, that that story actually, well, the the other the last one, Dancing with Our Ancestors as well, but Dancing with Our um returning to the Yakun River, I felt a lot of pressure sharing that story because it's not an experience that children have anymore. And especially with the environmental concerns that we have going on in the world today, I really felt like this story had the potential to inspire people to want to protect the environment or want to, to make changes to be able to, to have those experiences that I describe in the book. And I, but I didn't realize it at the time when I sort of laid it out. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, like this isn't an experience that, that people can have anymore. Yeah. And, and what if engaging with this book means that, that they do what they can potentially bring back the possibility of those experiences? brought me back to my childhood memories the, the one passage about the floater floater jackets and i was like were you all wearing the mustang floater jackets <laughs> were they yes, were they yes, were they we camouflaged were. or bright orange like what <laughs> oh no 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 we had blue, blue and green, green. Okay. we had blue and green. we had all we had all sorts like that was it's funny funny to think that you would think like yeah sure they would have kept you floating but like were they really that much of a life jacket that we were wearing back then in those days well, i don't know i just remember like it was funny because i actually interviewed my brother for that book and some of the stories that he came up with were just, they were absolutely hilarious. Like the, anything I, uh, anything that I catch in my net is, um, is mine <laughs> it, from my chinny is exactly that, you know, my brother told me that story. Um, but he had. I thought that was hilarious. Know, like like the, the boat. The, <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> well, and Janine did such a great job of capturing him. Like, I feel like people will know who he is based on that one image of him and that, and the, you know, the couple key quotes, but yeah, when my, my brother told that story, we were all just laughing because it was, you know, it was just, it, it was such a, those were really good times yeah. in my life. And I didn't realize at the time how important they would be or that they were. And it was neat talking to my father because one of the things that I did with these books was I did the interviewing as well. Like it, it was a similar research process, but on a micro scale uh, to yeah. write the books and just talking to him about why was it so important for us to, to go to the Yakun river and experience fishing. And he said, well, you know, this is what makes you hide up. This is, you know, these were, and I, I sort of thought, well, you know, you just do it because you've always done it or whatever. And I didn't realize there was so much intention behind it. Just 
Mm-hmm. I, I am so, so grateful that I, I had those experiences and opportunities to just connect differently with, with family and, and with the land. Well, those stories and you can, you can think back to where you were and the, the jokes and the teasing and the just yeah. being together and the mishaps <laughs> and like, oh, I can't believe we, we made it through that one for <laughs> that one experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who, who, who yeah, pushed no. the salmon into the fire there? <laughs> that was the other thing no, I was going to ask. Was... Did you ever try the, the seagull egg uh, cake? No, we didn't. <laughs> this is the thing. And this is so funny because last week I was working with tween writers at the Vancouver Public Library and we were doing some writing and and I read I, I read because uh, I was doing a creative nonfiction workshop with them and uh, I read Returning to the Yakun River and this was the, the seagull egg cake has I it's interesting to read it I didn't realize it was such a focal point of the book but <laughs> there were a lot of questions about the cake and but no, we never did. And it was funny, I'd totally forgotten about it. But then again, of course, my brother reminded me, he's like, yeah, we wouldn't try that cake. And it's so funny. Now I'm like, whatever. And, and I can I can see that now I am officially a grown up because I don't see the problem with seagull egg cake that I definitely saw. When <laughs> seagull I was... egg cake. I'm going to I'm going to ask yeah, you about exactly. that next year. About, <laughs> have you had the cake yet? Dancing with our ancestors was, it is a, it's such a beautiful story, mm. a intergenerational story. And that connected to traveling to do with your, with your father to do the, 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 the potlatch and then the dancing. Mm. But then even like at the end with, I think if I can recall you at, at the front, but then your brother at the back and that cl- the kind of that, that, that intergenerational closing, but also the, the idea of the canoe together so I just I it was really moving like to read that and uh it was such a beautiful story so that was that the last Mm -hmm. that's the last of the books you wrote that that was the last picture book and it was interesting because with that book when I had initially planned to write the book I didn't plan for it you know it wasn't at that point my brother was still alive and I believed that I didn't imagine it would be anything other than this story of the potlatch because I think there's so little knowledge about the potlatch ban. And so it was almost a, a not a carryover, but a, a different way to explore um, the potlatch ban and kind of bring awareness about the potlatch ban. And also to remind people that we continue to practice the potlatch today, that there are contemporary versions of the ceremony and that, that we still do potlatch today. And so often still it it seems hard to believe but still we're kind of placed into the past and so it was a very important story to tell and then uh, when my brother died it took on this different significance because it ended up being the last time that we had danced together in ceremony and I remember I I was working with my father at the time and I was driving to his studio and and I, I realized okay so it was always going to be called dancing with our ancestors because because of the connections we feel when we're when we're dancing and i also think about the button blankets and how we're connected to our crests and that's an ancestral connection as well but it took on this new meaning when with my brother's death and and i came to understand that that the story the story that i had initially planned to tell wasn't wasn't the story that i needed to tell and I struggled a little bit because I knew that it was going to be for younger readers. And I, I, I worried like, oh, this, this might be a, a bit heavy for them. But I also felt it was so important. I was thinking about my nieces and my nephews and thinking about that, you know, some of them are, are uh, were much younger at the time. And I, I wondered what it would be for them to have books like that. And, and for other people going through, we had so much loss with the pandemic. I felt okay about it. And I was really grateful that the publisher was okay with proceeding with that story, including, including the, the, the story of my brother. And because I think that we need all of the stories. I think we need, we need to be able to, to make connections with, with all of the, all of the different experiences we have in our lives. And it, the intergenerational stories and following that, but also life cycle of birth and 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 mm-hmm. death in, in different mm-hmm. times of our lives in terms of when it happens. So to take that up with with mm-hmm. kids, uh, youth, children, and youth, I think is so important. It seems like we're afraid to talk about that as teachers mm-hmm. in the classroom anymore. 
or in general in society to have those conversations about dying. And like you said, the pandemic, we were, you know, globally faced with relatives and friends losing loved loved ones. And may perhaps like in reading this book would open up not like the comfort and the discomfort of being able to talk about that in a way to try to make sense of it for each of ourselves. If you can, I don't know if there's a way of making sense of it, but I appreciate so how much generosity that you and your father and, and other family members opened up to share these stories in all the different writings that you've done for your readers, because they're very powerful. And and like you said, like I, for me, I can see like taking this up in teacher education with teachers or even with students is that they're reading stories about fellow human beings that have lived, experienced these things. And there's so much more interconnection and perhaps um, openness to those teachings. And I, I don't know if that's the case. Like, I don't know if you've yet to take these up with uh, your students and or the youth. And, oh, yeah. and I'm wondering what the reception's like to those. I read them to my students. So I, I work with what I call learning stories in the courses that I teach. I read picture books to my students all the time. All my students get picture books. And what I find is it's so, it's a wonderful way to bring in lots of different voices and experiences. So as soon as we're reading a novel or we're reading a longer piece, we have to commit to that one person's perspective versus with picture books, it takes seven minutes to read one of my books. And <laughs> That's um, you know now. <laughs> I do know. <laughs> Have you have you recorded for an audio? No, but I no. I know audio that I, I have done lots of readings for young people, yeah. and so in terms of timing, how long thing you know if I have to do you've got thirty minutes to do this read aloud. Okay, so I got this much time, but and they were written actually as um, I wrote them also because I my my uh, classroom experience is is working with teenagers, and they're thousand word narrative essays. I, my hope was that they would also be used in secondary schools. But the, I think the other contribution is that they are kind of everyday lived experiences and people enjoy reading them. And what has been exciting for me is, is seeing readers see the value in their own stories, because this isn't about the day that the, mm. the shark came up and you know took down the boat. This is a day that just happens to be one of the days that my father went fishing with his grandfather or one of the days where my uncle and my yeah. uh, father went out fishing and we went and got water. And what I've tried to do when I work, with, especially with young people, is to, to let them know that their experiences, their lived experiences matter and that I hope that they share them because it, for me, it would be very exciting to read about the day in the life of a a 12 year old and you know how is school i i i i find yeah. and i and i if they're willing to share it with you exactly exactly <laughs> but i you know i end up with these beautiful stories so in my in my um, university classes these beautiful stories of uh one of my students shared about learning to to write calligraphy from her uh, chinese grandfather and and that oh, they didn't wow. have a shared language, but that they were able to have that experience. And I learned about another uh, boy learning to make Jamaican patties from his grandmother. And they're just these beautiful stories. And I think they help us to build relationships um, with one another and to kind of see the humanity in one another and sort of thinking about what I see in classrooms post, I'm putting air quotes around post-pandemic, I just see that we need those connections. We need those relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's been so wonderful to see what happens when we share stories. And at the end of the class, at the end of the course, we'll, we'll have a, a sharing circle. And most often students will, will go away from the course, seeing value in community and family-based knowledge. And excitement about talking to grandparents and I, I just I feel like that is a, an immense gift I just feel so grateful that that that's the the learning that they take away from the course yeah and it is and I can't can't reiterate mm -hmm. enough like the gift and the how beautiful the books are in terms of the stories and the writing and also the illustrations by Janine Gibbons and you also put together a beautiful teacher's guide for the Scottish stories, intergenerational learning mm -hmm. and storytelling in the classroom with, is it Katya Adamov Ferguson? Yeah, Katya. Yeah, Katya. she was yeah. fantastic to work with. And 
I think, the, so the work that we were really interested in, uh, uh, the work that I do at the university is predominantly supporting teachers to uh, teach literacy in the classroom. And I really wanting to support educators to think about different ways to make meaning from stories. And not that we don't need the comprehension uh, work as well, but that this was a, a different way of yeah. thinking about working with stories and more compatible with some of the traditional stories that we may have in classrooms and just encouraging people to think about the kind of story that we're, we're bringing in and adjusting or adapting our pedagogy to be respectful of how we're learning from that story. And so we created it for the series, but it's absolutely applicable to, to working with any stories. Uh, there's a holistic framework for thinking through the stories that you've shared. And then, which I like an openness where it it's not like a specificity to British Columbia and the curriculum where, oh, they created this guide for that. No, you can mm -hmm. take it out. You could take take these stories and the guide if you're a, a teacher, whether you're in the elementary system or high school and look through these to get idea like this guide to get ideas in terms of how you might take these up with the students or not. Like like you said, mm -hmm. like it's not a, a recipe or a formula for doing it. And I and I, I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier that you said, like, look, this was kind of like a mini project with I, I think it's a not a mini. It's a it's a it's a macro project, and I I hesitate to say this, but I, I'm I love it so much because of the the prior research that you've done and being able to think through methodologically and draw on your family history and knowledges to then create co-create these books and have them out there, but also also share the knowledge, make it available so that it can be shared in the schooling system. So have that impact as well. And again, this is why I say, I don't want to reduce it to, to this, but the language in, you know, a settler colonial institution, like mm -hmm. the university is like, they want you to do research and then knowledge uh, translation and then knowledge mobilization. And someone might see this and say, oh, you've done all those things, but then it's very reductive in terms of thinking about how many histories and history and the context and the art and everything that went into this that I don't think could have happened if you if you weren't who you were, if you weren't related to who you were, and you didn't have that amazing cast of people to support you to do this work. Absolutely. And I think I'm most excited about projects now that draw on all aspects of my the knowledge that has come to me. And and uh, so I'm very, you know, I, I've had these moments now in it where I, I've said, oh, this actually, everything I've done in my life has prepared me for this moment, for this project. And that really excites me. And I think that it's mm -hmm. important that we, that we're able to kind of see ourselves as whole and recognize the contributions that all aspects of who we are and our identities contribute to that. Uh, as opposed to, I found that for a lot of my life, I was trying to just sort of operate in one particular way and kind of close off all of these other parts, because I, as you know, existing in all of these multiple worlds means sort of having to close some doors or just to be able to, to function. And so I'm really excited to be in the space now where I can see all of those different experiences as contributing to the work that I'm doing. And I, I felt really good about these books. And I think it's just been really exciting for me to, to see the stories going out in the world and, and just knowing that my family, not, not necessarily me, but my family will continue to teach this broader community of people and that the experiences I've been lucky enough to have can be shared with, with a much wider community. Well, Sarah, I, I feel that, uh, we were in the boat going out to jig for halibut, but we only got, were able to go out with the tide and we have yet <laughs> to have the time to come back in. So we have to get together again. I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Uh, I know it's, it's super busy for you this week in terms of what's, you know, family life and things that are coming up. So I can't thank you enough. Uh, the, again, the books are beautiful for listeners that are there. Make sure to check out uh, Sarah's podcast on food and conversation and i'll have a description and links to where you can get the books and and the guide as as well and uh again thank you for the generosity and the scada 
uh, today. I don't know if that's how you would say it uh, in terms of teachings, but uh, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. We say how, uh, so how, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to have had a conversation how, uh. with you and reconnect. It's been a while. Yeah. It has. Thank you. <laughs> we got to do this For again. For sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> thank you.